History is usually written by the winners, not by the losers. And the way in which the history of slavery has been represented for the most part is as abolition, the triumph of abolition. So we're trying to think again about that way of writing the history and put the whole slavery business and the wealth it produced and the people who were involved in it back into British history. My name is Catherine Hall and I teach in the history department at UCL and I'm involved with a very exciting project uh, that we have here in this department on the legacies of British slave ownership. In 1833, when slavery was abolished in the British Caribbean and in Mauritius and the Cape, £20 million was paid in compensation to the slave owners because they were seen as having lost what was called their property, the enslaved men and women who they had bought or who had been born in captivity on their estates. And of that £20 million, which was paid out of taxpayers' money, nearly £10 million stayed in Britain. So there were a very substantial number of slave owners in Britain who made substantial claims on that money and therefore had a large cash influx at that time. And although there was a major, major campaign to abolish slavery, huge public movement, uh, great pressure put on Parliament, and certainly abolition would never have happened without that movement of both men and women across the country. Slavery was part of ordinary life, and slave owners were not seen as particularly shocking people. It wasn't seen as something really disgraceful. So slave owners mixed with everybody else. And indeed, there were, for example, a lot of women slave owners who didn't necessarily have any relation at all to the Caribbean, but who had been left money in trust or left an annuity uh, and were actually living off the labour of enslaved domestic servants, for example, in Jamaica or in Barbados. So slavery was kind of, because it was put at a distance, it didn't have the impact that it had in the United States, for example, where, of course, uh, the enslaved lived cheek by jowl with those who were free. Well, now our project is focused on this whole question of compensation and on the slave owners because we're trying to uh, bring to people's attention the ways in which Britons were engaged in this activity uh, and the pervasive nature of that activity. So the records that we're using, which are extraordinarily detailed about the claims that were being made for compensation, um, don't tell us they tell us very little about the enslaved. The enslaved only appear in these records as the numbers that people could make claims in, in the name of. It, it does also open up to us the mediated voices of the enslaved. If you read what we call against the grain of some of these histories, you can find the mediated voices of the enslaved. So an interesting example of this would be uh, the way in which um, a very uh, famous narrative of a black enslaved woman, Mary Prince, was produced by the abolitionists as a form of propaganda in 1831. 
And I call it mediated because although it's apparently in her voice telling her history, she tells it to a woman who transcribes it and it's then edited by uh, the Secretary of the Anti-Slavery Society. So it's made appropriate for an abolitionist audience. It's telling a particular, it's a particular way of telling the narrative which can give us some access to the experience of the enslaved woman, but only some. We can't take it as simply authentic that this is what Mary Prince said or thought. I mean, for example, she would have spoken in Creole and, you know, it's not, it appears as regular English in the text. So trying to read between the lines in that way is a very important way of trying to get access to black people's experience through the writings of white people. That's the only way we can get at them. But this is work that it's very, very important to do and particularly important for women since, you know, they're even less recorded. The poet Elizabeth Barrett, who became Elizabeth Barrett Browning, was the daughter of a very significant Jamaican slave owner and she had very, very complicated feelings about slavery and slave ownership and she was not sympathetic to slavery but she was very well aware that the family money came from slavery and indeed she inherited money on that basis. And she wrote a poem um, in the 1840s which she wrote in fact for the American abolitionists called The Runaway Slave at Pilgrim's Point. And in that poem she tries to imagine being black. So there are many powerful lines in the poem in the voice of an enslaved woman, I am black, I am black. And this is a woman who is raped by her white master, bears a child, cannot bear the fact that her child is the product of rape, kills the child and calls on the enslaved to rebel. So it's a very, very dramatic poem. Yet this woman, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, you know, who imagines all this, her own life is made comfortable financially by her family wealth and she was not opposed at all to the principle of compensation. She thought that it was right that the slave owners were compensated because property was property and if you lose property it should be compensated. So that just gives us one of those complicated glimpses into what it meant to be totally implicated in the slavery business and yet to have very ambivalent feelings about it. It's been hard for Britons to think about the extent to which slavery has shaped our history. And there are many um, physical remnants of that, the country houses that were built on slaving wealth, the art collections that were um, accumulated by slave owners, the ways in which sugar became an absolutely central part of the diet of the entire British population from the 18th century onwards, the ways in which British financial and commercial institutions have actually been built on Atlantic slave trade and slavery. And of course that's a long time ago, but those are the roots. All our major banks uh, have connections back to slavery. Some of them are willing to recognise that, um, and are helping us. Others are much more embarrassed about that legacy. 
And then there's the political legacies and the, the ways in which people think about the past and the kinds of hierarchies of racism, the ways in which Africans are seen as at the bottom of the list and Indians are somehow somewhat more civilized in inverted commas than Africans. These ways of thinking are well established in the 18th and 19th centuries and are ways of thinking associated with slavery and the kind of labor um, that goes with slavery. So contemporary racial thought has many inflections from this long, long history. After slavery, the people who'd been active uh, in the Caribbean, uh, their business interests now stretch out across the new areas of settlement. Uh, of course, there are myriad associations with India, um, but also with Australia, New Zealand, Canada. So the tentacles of this business, they don't just stop. You know, it isn't just an end. People with attitudes, with particular kinds of attitudes to race and labor, uh, are moving around the empire. There's extraordinary mobility around the empire. So these legacies live on, and it's those legacies in terms of racial thought, in terms of financial and mercantile institutions, in terms of the city, in terms of ways of thinking and acting politically, it's those legacies that we're pursuing through the 19th century, through our work on the compensation records. And we're, we want people to think about that because of the present, because of the present, and the ways in which these formations have been part of what it is to be a modern Britain.